There's an account in the Gospels of a woman who had a bleeding disorder, had been going on for years, 12 years, and she had spent, the Scripture says, all of her money on medicinal aids that had done no good whatsoever. And so she heard that this teacher, Jesus, was coming her way, and she thought, if only I can touch the, the edge of his garment, then I'll be healed. It's an amazing thought. And, and so Christ comes into her town, and he's being pushed and prodded by the crowds, and she comes forward in her uncleanness, and she falls at his feet and reaches out and touches the edge of his robe. And immediately, the Bible says, she was healed. And Jesus stops, and he says to his men, who touched me? And his men ask with great wonderment, Lord, he says, people are all touching, they're pushing, they're prodding, they're, they're, they're running, everybody's touching you. He said, no, somebody touched me. And the Bible says that she came and she fell before him, and he said to her, go in peace, you are healed. And I, whenever I read that, this is in Mark 5, I always think that the primary need of my life is to get myself in the presence of the God of all glory, whose name is Jesus. There's a man named J.C. Ryle who wrote a little commentary on Mark, and he says this, he says, one touch of real faith in Christ can do more for the soul than a hundred self-imposed austerities. One look at Jesus is more effectual, powerful, than years of sackcloth and ashes. I need to get myself in the presence of Christ. One touch. A man named Carl F.H. Henry, one of the greatest thinkers in the church of the last century, died at the age of 90, and a few months before he died, he gave a sermon, he was crystal clear in his thinking, at Beeson Divinity School. And this man is a PhD in philosophy, has written massive volumes on Christian thought. And this is what he said as he sat in his wheelchair, unable to stand. He said, in the darkness of my young life at the age of 20, he, Christ, put bright stars that still shine and sparkle. After that encounter, I walked the world with God as my friend. And what he was saying is that never forget the grace of the cross. And in all of your academic studies and all that you're about, the primary thing that we're about is the reality of Christ and him crucified. And so I, I find an echo of this in this book of 1 Peter, as Peter's writing this letter to a group of churches in what is now Turkey, and, and, and as he brings it to a close, he says that after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory, will himself restore, will himself strengthen, and will himself establish you. He will con as you run to him, you will continuously be restored. And the word for restore means to mend a net that has been broken, like one of our cast nets. We get caught on an oyster bed and be ripped. It means to be sewn back together. It's the same word used to repair orthopedically a bone. He will restore you. He will strengthen you, which means to 
hold up when you're about to topple, and he will establish you as you go to him, as you understand the grace of the cross. He'll do this continuously. We like to give the impression that we, are, we have it all together. We're kind of, sort of. That we're kind of like these guys, you know. That, that we really are, we really have it all together. And, and, and that you go back to the book of Revelation and there's a letter to a church that says you, you'd like to give the impression you have it all together, but you don't realize you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're without clothes. That, that we daily need the grace of God in our lives. As we know, here's the thesis, as we know this God of grace and glory in the gospel of grace he will restore, He will strengthen, He will establish. Thoreau said this, and you've read this many times, most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And so the promise in this passage, He'll restore, He'll strengthen, He'll establish. Again, so we're just going to look at these little words. Restore means to mend, to put back in place. He'll continuously do this. He says, and God himself will do that. That's what I love. He says, after you suffer a little while, the God of our grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself. God will do this. He will restore continuously. He'll put it back in place. What areas of your life need the restoring touch of Jesus by the Spirit? Have you ever, I have, I do this frequently, I'll see someone who's a Christ follower and they have to go through a deep valley, the valley of the shadow of death, through a difficult time. And I'll sometimes watch them with amazement. There are people right now I could name, and many of you know, and I just, and I sit back sometimes and I say, how do they do that? How do they do that? How do they walk through this incredibly difficult time with dignity and grace and tears and faith? And whenever I say that to myself, and I do it frequently, I sometimes, maybe the Holy Spirit, maybe I just say, don't be so silly. Here's how they do it. Listen to Mark chapter 13, verse 11. Jesus says, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. I read about men and women who are martyred, who have basically no education and, and little understanding of anything but the gospel of grace, and yet they stand with dignity and pride and and and. and, the, and how do they do it? Here's how they do it. God himself. God himself. As you run to the living God, God himself will, will restore you. God himself will strengthen you before you topple. God himself will establish you. That, that's, that's how you do it. As you run to Christ. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16 and following. It says, there's a veil that covered the heart of God's Old Testament people, but the veil was taken away when Jesus came. 
But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory as we look to Jesus are being transformed from glory to glory by His power, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Restored. God is restoring us as we run to Jesus. God is restoring us as we know the God of all grace. That's what He does. It's gloriously good. And then as I look at the text, I say, well, how, how does the restoration process take place? How does the strengthen process? Or do, here's how it takes place as you look at the book. 1 Peter 1, 22, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love of the brethren. So, so ha- having purified your souls by obedience to the truth. First of all, I'm gladly obeying the truth because God has transformed my heart. And then he goes on, he talks about the power of the Word of God. And then he says, verses 1 to 3, you put away certain things as you have tasted that that the Lord is good. And you say, well, how does he restore? Verse 4, and as you continually come to him, it's a process, a living stone rejected by, by men in the sight of God and chosen and precious you yourselves you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood unto Christ you're being built up how how, how do you experience this process of restoration you continually come back to Jesus out of obedience to the truth you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and so you run back to him all the time I was with a, a wonderful, one of our Barnabas partners, an international worker, a few weeks ago. We were talking, and uh, he said, you know, so we just experienced something, and I just kind of, let me tell you what happened. So we had a marriage re- enrichment retreat for a bunch of third world workers, Christian workers. So we met for two days. And he said, we learned how to communicate, and we learned how to walk through conflict resolution, and we learned how to say, aha, when our spouse talks. Hmm. Give eye contact, you know. And he said, we did this for two days, and he said, not once in two days was the name of Jesus mentioned. He said, it just bothered me. It bothered me. There's a guy in the early church named Tertullian, and he famously said, what does Jerusalem have in common with Athens? In other words, what do the people of God have in common with Greco thought? We reject that. We believe all truth is God's truth. We can learn from all kinds of people. But listen, if the foundation is not Jesus and Him crucified, if we're not worshipers, the most important thing since it's about marriage, the most important thing that you can do as a married person is to worship Jesus. And to plead for the Holy Spirit to change you from a selfish, self-centered, egocentric person to a Jesus-filled person by the power of the Spirit. The most important thing you can do as a friend 
is to worship the living God, whose name is Jesus, and, and to pray, God, change me. I, I don't want people to walk away from our meetings and hear and say this, where was Jesus in all of that? Jesus must be central. That's what Peter's saying to this church. It's going to persecution. He says, you know, it, you, you, you two, like living stones, are being built. And, and so how, do we, how are, we, are we restored? We, we run to the gospel of grace. We run to the person work of Christ. Secondly, in this passage, we do it in context, the context of community. Like living stones, you guys, you all are being built into a spiritual house of worship. His man named George Whitfield, he died in 1770. He was 55 years old. He was probably the greatest preacher of the 18th century. He was an evangelist. One of the leading actors of his day, a man named David Garrick, said, I would give all of my money if I could say the word Mesopotamia, like George Whitfield. He would preach, listen, he would preach to 20,000 people, obviously without a PA system, in Philadelphia. He made seven trips from Britain to the U.S., to the colonies. Died in 1777. trips. He was always on the move. He was always going about. But I recently read something that George Whitfield wrote, and it just made me love him all the more. He was a valiant man. This is what he said. He was writing to some believers. He said, to this end, here's a man who was always on the move and, and, and forfeited because of his calling continuity in the body of Christ. You know what I'm talking about? He didn't get to worship every day with the same group of people like some, some of us do. And he longed for it. He says, to this end, you would do well, as others have done, to form yourselves into little companies of four or five each and meet once a week to tell each other what is in your hearts, that you may then also pray for and comfort each other as need shall require. None but those who have experienced it can tell you the unspeakable advantage of such a union and communion of souls. I love him for that. He said, you know, I'm, I'm always moving, but I wish I had the continuity of being with a small group of people to whom I could disclose my soul. We need that. Community groups, women's groups, men's groups, you, you, people who know you and who pray for you. See, see that, that's... that's one manifestation, for example, Malachi, there, there had been a, this is 40 years before Christ, there was a general apostasy, and, and so Malachi writes this, he says, when, when God works among his people, verse 16 of chapter 3, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. See, one work of the Holy Spirit reviving his people is people who reverence God get together and remember the great things of God. And if I'm going to be restored, I need the body of Christ. I need people in my life who pray for me and who care for me and who love me. And this is very tender but last night at 2 o'clock in the morning, I was with some people at the Henderson's house, some men sitting right here, and we looked at each other, and I said, how do people do it without the body of Christ? How do people walk through 
the morass of this world in the valley of the shadow of death without brothers. As I saw people screaming into the house and weeping and embracing and praying, I thought, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God for the church of the risen Savior. See, I need that. See, and I've been reading through this Old Testament book, Second Chronicles. And I read about these kings and they come to power and when, when, they're, when they're surrounded by, by righteous dudes who speak to them, they do well. But then the righteous dude dies and they crash. Listen, this guy named Joash, he becomes king at age seven. He's on the throne for 40 years. And it says this, Joash was seven when he began to reign and he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zibiah of Beersheba, and Joash did what was right in the eyes of Jehovah all the days of Jehoiada, the priest. Jehoiada came beside this young boy and mentored him and loved him and cared for him and prayed for him and instructed him, and Joash was like a rocket. And then it says this, but Jehoiada grew old and full of days, and he died. He was 130 years old at his death, and they buried him. Now, after the death of Jehoiada, the princes of Judah came and paid homage to King Joash, and the king listened to them, ungodly men. And they abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served idols. And then... God in mercy raised up a prophet to speak the truth to King Joaz. His name was Zechariah, the son of his mentor Jehoiada. And Joash didn't like what he heard, so he had the son of his mentor stoned to death. Wow. And, and then you've got this man named Uzziah, became a king of Judah later. Chapter 26, verse 5, Uzziah set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. But in the context of the passage, we think Zechariah dies, and then it says that Uzziah, filled with pride and arrogance because he was strong, entered the temple of God and offered fire that was not his to offer. It was only offered by the priest. Seventy priests came and said, great king, don't do this. He said, basically take a hike. He developed leprosy on the spot and lived the rest of his days in outcast in a, in a cabin behind the palace. He didn't listen to people. And now I, I come to this guy named Hezekiah in chapter 32. This is just good stuff. And Hezekiah is being besieged by this powerful king of Assyria named Sennacherib. Isn't that a great name? Sennacherib. And Sennacherib stands up and he says, you're a nothing kingdom. I have defeated kingdoms more powerful than you guys, and you're going down. And it says this, this is, it says, verse 20, then Hezekiah, the king, and Isaiah, the guy who wrote Isaiah, Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amos, prayed because of this, and they cried to heaven. See, these guys got together, some godly guys got together, and they cried to heaven. And God delivered the people of Israel. Sennacherib was murdered. Now, I just say, when you walk with godly people, 
He goes, well, how does God restore you? The God of all grace, who called you as eternal glory, will himself restore you. I'm saying he restores you as you know the truth, as you taste that he's good, and as you walk in his way. He restores you as you walk in his way with other people. And then secondly, it says here, he will support you or he will strengthen you continually. As you run to the cross, you won't be toppled. Some of us are like this Sherpa in Nepal. That's what we feel. We barely make it. But the promise is that as you run to Christ, as you glory in him, he strengthens you. How about this verse? Romans 8. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption, the full adoption as sons, heaven, the redemption of our bodies for in this hope we were saved. And let me ask you this. Have you been groaning lately? Do you ever sit back and say, I, God, I am tired of sin. I'm, I'm just tired of the struggle. I, I'm, I, that's groaning. But there's a difference between groaning and moaning. See, a, a moan is a cry of, this, of, of horror because there's no hope. We groan. God, I'm tired of this. But we don't moan. We don't throw in the towel. We, we groan physically. S some of us remember, and it really happened. Some of us can remember the day when we played basketball and we jumped up and we grabbed the rim with our hands. And it was not at six feet. It was at ten feet, regulation height. And now... If we jump at all, we rupture our Achilles tendon. You get up in the morning and your body hurts. And it's, there's a groaning. Or some of, you, some of you have been walking through cancer. And it's depleted every reservoir of strength in your body. And you've grown, oh God, how much longer? Are you, see, we should be groaning because we live in an imperfect world. There's a little passage that is like Orwellian doublespeak. If it weren't in the Bible, I'd go, you know, come on. It's 2 Corinthians, and it's chapter 12. And Paul is talking about a thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it is. He talks about this incredible vision that a man had of heaven, probably speaking of himself autobiographically. And then he says, but this person was given a thorn in the flesh. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, and here's the, the, the part that you go, really? The Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul says, therefore, 
I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, plural, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God says, I'm using your weaknesses, I'm using your brokenness, I'm using your health issues to my glory. Because I'm the sovereign king, and I rule, and I reign. And I'm making a rich tapestry of your life, and you won't see the tapestry with full orb view until you die. He strengthens us. Thirdly, very, very quickly. He establishes us. He gives us a place to stand. You see, we step back and we say, the God who is has spoken with finality in Jesus and his apostles. And, and so we, we live under that authority. Now, I want you to hear this. Very quickly. I love my country. I am I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I am a son of the South. I was trained to be a patriot by my daddy and my mama. I went to the Citadel. We're supposed to pray for those in authority. But my heart was broken when I was overseas and I turned on the internet. And I saw what the Supreme Court had overturned the Defense of Marriage Act by a vote of five to four. And I read the minority dissenting opinion by Tony Scalia. And this is what he says, just two sentences. By formally declaring anyone opposed to same-sex marriage an enemy of human decency... The majority of this court arms well every challenger to a state law restricting marriage to its traditional definition. Henceforth, those challengers will lead this court's declaration that there is, quote, no legitimate purpose, close quote, served by such a law, and will claim that the traditional definition has, quote, the purpose and effect to disparage and to injure, close quote, the personhood and dignity of same-sex couples. The result will be a judicial distortion of our society's debate over marriage, a debate that can seem in need of our clumsy help only to a member of this institution. Well, that's a powerful statement. So this institution doesn't need any help unless you're a member of this institution. And then later he talked about the fact that his peers are plotting a black-robed supremacy in striking down the Defense of Marriage Act. Now listen, the vote was 5 to 4. I don't care if the vote was 9 to 0. I don't care if 435 right congressmen and 100 senators vote for a bill. If the Word of God says it's wrong, it is wrong. And I, that's where we stand. And we stand there with dignity. We stand there with, 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 with courage. We stand there with brokenness. We love people who are trapped in this lifestyle. And I, I lament that it's become such an issue. But Scripture is, you go back to the Acts and the apostles, untrue, unschooled, untrained, ordinary men like us, said the ruling council, we must obey God and not man. See, he's established us in Jesus. 
He's given us a, a place to stand. And then I was reading some articles in the magazine called The Economist Magazine. It's a good magazine, kind of, sort of. Gives you international news. They're conservative in economics, but when it comes to social issues, they are all over the place because they don't have a place to stand. And so they're, 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 they're rejoicing over what they say, the, the commendable fashion of young people who are economically conservative, but socially are, are basically non-pulsed, uncaring. And so they, they talk about what they call Generation Boris. Boris Johnson being the mayor of London, who's an economic conservative, but a social liberal. And they're trumpeting that. And they say that's where the vast majority of young people under the age of 35 are in the West. And, and I think they're right. Listen, my desire is to raise up a generation of young people after generation after generation who says, we will stand with dignity and grace upon the word of God because he has established me in Jesus and because God is and he has spoken, I stand here. And we will not be captivated by the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, by the shifting sands of things around us. Back to the quote, life below. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. Now, Thoreau was a Hindu, we think. He didn't get the gospel. Let me tell you what the gospel says. Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave because they haven't discovered the song that flows from Calvary. The song isn't in you. The song is in Jesus. That's why I love Luther's statement that we are saved by an alien righteousness, which doesn't mean a bunch of Martians died for us. What he means is that it happened outside of us, on the cross, by Jesus. See, the song flows when the reality of Christ is linked to my need, when the offering and work of Jesus is linked to who I am. Then the song flows. Let me just ask you this. As you look at this, one more study in 1 Peter. Are, are, you, are you being mastered by the gospel of grace? That's, he's saying if you want to get power, run to the God of all grace. Run to the gospel of grace. Know this God. I was reading an article about conductors of orchestras. I know about as much about this as I do open heart surgery, but it was an interesting article. And it says this, just in this little article, it says that Whatever a conductor style, the most important quality is a sense of being almost possessed by the music, leading to a total and irresistible conviction that inspires an orchestra to play its heart out and project to an audience. I thought, that's a definition of a disciple of Jesus. Someone who is captivated by the message, who is surrounded by the gospel of grace. That's what we need to be. Is the gospel captivating your spirit? Is the God of all grace, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a means of deep thought and joyful reflection? So Peter's saying here to a church going to intense persecution, he says, what you need to realize is that the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Jesus Christ, will himself restore and strengthen and establish you. To him 
be the dominion forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what we need. Well, let's, uh, let's stand and close in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Lord, we stand before you as your people, uh, praying, God, give us the insight that Peter is pleading for, for his scattered flock all over Turkey. That after you suffered a little while, he says, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself continuously restore, constantly strengthen, and gloriously establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And God, we pray that for our lives. And we just ask that you'd make us that type of people. We bless your name. We ask now that we would go out from this Lord's Day worship and we would represent Christ in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.